How does God reveal himself? When he reveals himself, what is the message? And what does this message reveal to us of who we are and what we're called to be? Most of us think of the religions of Christianity, of Judaism, and Islam as monotheistic. Yet monolatry may be a better name for the ancient, Egypt, ancient Hebrew approach to God because they acknowledged that other gods existed, but they only worshiped one. And this is seen in the Old Testament, especially in Daniel where Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire, the flaming furnace, and suddenly they're walking around, nothing's affecting them, and they're called out, and the king says, surely the God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego is greater than our gods. He is the God Most High. When David offends the king, he's thrown into the lion's limb. And in that den, the mouths of the lions are shut. And the king comes the next day, worried that his chief advisor didn't survive the night, and he opens the door, and there's David, or Daniel, with the lions around him. And the king says, how great the God of Daniel is, for no other God could seal the mouth of a lion. This acknowledging of other gods by the gods around the people of Israel was a constant struggle and a temptation to the people because it was easy to fall into the trap of just worshiping all. Well, we'll go over and we'll worship Yahweh on Saturday evening and we'll worship the other gods during the week, and we'll get a double blessing. We'll make sure our crops come in, make sure our lands are fertile, and everything is fine. Constant temptation. But how did the God reveal himself to the Israelites? That's the question. And he revealed himself by picking out certain people who he considered righteous in his eyes. We have the first thing that he addresses a covenant with is Noah. God has been upset. Humanity has been overcome by evil, and in that being overcome by evil, God despairs at his creation. And he decides, I'm going to wipe it out. I'm going to start over. And he sees in Noah the righteousness, the avenue through which he will recreate. And so he communes with Noah and says, I want you to build an ark. And I want you to place two of all living creatures on that ark with you. And I want you to take your sons and their wives and your wife and survive this rain that I am going to send. At the end of 40 days and the flood and the long time and the sequence of going through the survival, they come to a point of rest. And God says to Noah, never again will I do 
this action. And as a sign, I will put my bow in the sky. So that every time it rains and you see this bow, you will be renewed in my promise. And so time continues on. And again, we humans in our response to God is one day, yes, I'm with you, God, and the next day, never mind, I don't need you. And this theme runs over and over and over again. And finally, we have the covenant with Abraham. Abraham is called to leave his homeland and to go to a place which God will tell you when you get there. I'm not going to give you the name. I'm not going to tell you where you're going. When you get there, I will tell you. A test right off the bat. Will Abraham respond? And Abraham at that time was named Abram. And it's interesting that Abram is willing to drop everything, to go to this unknown place and follow this God who beckons him. And the promise is that you will become the father of a great nation. And your offspring will rival the stars in the sky, the sands on the beach. And one of the tests that he will have to do is to sacrifice his son. God puts him in a bind. How can I be loyal and give what is most precious to me? How can the promise be fulfilled? And what happens? Just as he's ready to plunge the knife into his son, the angel pulls him back and says, you have done what God required. And as they go on with the story, finally God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, from Sarai to Sarah. Significant name change. Name change means something great has happened. And because of that, this is a new individual. But the biggest one of the people of Israel is Moses. God beckons Moses by calling his attention to a bush that appears to be burning, but does not be consumed. Curiosity brings Moses over. Moses comes over and he hears, Moses, Moses, take off thy shoes, for the ground on which you tread is sacred. And then God throws his challenge at him. I want you to go and liberate my people. They've been enslaved for 430 years, and I want you to go and set my people free. And what is Moses' response? You gotta be kidding. You don't know what you're asking me to do. I can't do this. And God says, no. You must go. So he comes up with the excuse. He says, and when I go, and the people ask me who sent me, who am I to tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am has sent you. I am 
God reveals something very important to Moses. His God is a God who is. Whatever he wants to be, whoever he wants to be, however he wants to be, I am. And so Moses goes through and allows God to work through him. And in working through him, he eventually brings about that promise. That promise that God will set them free. And when they set them free, they go out joyful, and then within a few weeks, they are testing God and saying, why did you bring us into this desert? Why didn't you do this? We could be very happy back in Egypt with our flesh pots. Why are you doing this to us? And God becomes upset. God doesn't know what he's going to do. And again, he's at that point where he said, these people are so evil that I will wipe them out and I will raise up children to you from these rocks. And Moses says, no. He becomes the middleman. He stands up and says to God, these are the people you made the promise to. These are the people you have made the eternal promise to be their God. And God relents. And when they come to the promised land, Moses sends out people to survey the territory. And they check the territory out and they say, this is truly a land filled with milk and honey. However, However, there are all sorts of obstacles we have to overcome. Their cities are fortified. There's giants in this one area. And we don't have the army to do it. And so God sends them out on a circuitous route for 40 years, back and forth, because they did not trust in him. Did not trust in him in him. And at the end of the time, Moses is taken up to the mountain and given the covenant. And the covenant is the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord alone is God. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. This is now a gigantic revelation of who God is. He is a God of creation. He is a God of wonder works. He is a God who fulfills his promises to his people. And then we come to Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene, and they have the law, and they have the various groups Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, Herodians, all with a different perspective of what God requests and what God expects, a different interpretation with each group. So when Jesus comes out proclaiming his message, which is rejoice, rejoice, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He suddenly takes these groups and the people who follow these people 
and he shakes their comfort zone. They're happy with how they worship God. They're content with how they follow the rules and regulations and interpretation of the law. But just Jesus is coming and saying, you have heard it said, you shall not, but I tell you. And they suddenly get worried. Are you going to change the law? Are you going to upset everything we believe in? Are you going to destroy our faith? And what is Jesus' answer? No. I have come to fulfill the law, not to change it, not to turn it upside down, to fulfill. And they can't recognize his message. He goes throughout Judea proclaiming that good news that one who understands that message is one who's going to answer his call, the one who is willing to come to him and follow him. In our gospel passage today, we heard that Thomas is saying, I can't believe what you were saying after what I heard and saw of the death of Christ, our dreams were dissipated, it's all over. Until I put my finger in that nail print in his hand, thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. When Jesus comes and tells Thomas, take your best shot, go ahead, do it. Scripture doesn't tell us whether Thomas actually did it. But that immediate recognition of my Lord and my God, El Shaddai, Adonai, all the gods are there present to him. And this Jesus is who Yahweh is, who El is, who El Shaddai is. He is the true manifestation of God himself. And what is he calling? Blessed are you, Thomas, for you have come to believe because you have seen. More blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Guess who that is? That's you and me. We believe on the testimony of those who have come before us. And we believe on that testimony that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He is the fulfillment of God's revelation of who he is and what he is about. And that all who will come to recognize him is truly a member of his call, truly a believer. And that's the lesson we have to remember. Not too long ago in this church we had our confirmation. 
And our candidates, the Confirmandi, received the fullness of their baptismal promise, the fullness of receiving the Spirit. And I told them last Monday when I first met them after receiving that Spirit, that my prayer for them was that they use those gifts, those seven gifts of the Spirit, to find out who they are, what they're about, what they're called to be, so that they can bear the fruits of the Spirit, and they can pick up the mantle to pass on to generations yet to be born what they have come to know, to believe in. And what have we come to know and to believe in? What is it that we claim to believe? Every Sunday, we mention the creed, which defines exactly who we believe in and what we are for. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. A little further when we go down there, we have that introduction to the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son to enlighten and guide us on our journey. How receptive are we to that Spirit? Are we willing to trust and follow His guidance? Are we willing to fall into that same pitfall we have fallen into from the day of creation of there must be something more and I am the one that is in control? If we can learn that it is not I, if we can learn that the temptations that all humanity have gone through is just a focus on that evil trinity, me, myself, and I, and that we need, we need the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we discern the Father's will, and if we carry it out as Jesus himself showed us how to respond to that Father's will, then, the Spirit will constantly be our illumination. It will be constantly the light that enlightens the path that you and I are to follow. Jesus didn't give us a free pass by his death and resurrection. What he gave us was an ability to respond, an ability to come to know when and how to follow God. And he knows that we're going to stumble. He knows that we're going to fall. But he has given us a great toolkit that consists of seven sacraments. And if we use these sacraments in the way they were intended, then the path is open. But is it an easy path? No, it is narrow. It's hard to follow, but we will 
be able to follow it. And if we drift off the path, if we use that sacrament of reconciliation, we can once again come back in balance, balance with God, balance with the path that we should be on, and keep moving toward our goal. And what is the goal? The goal is salvation. The goal is seeing the beatific vision. First letter of John says, we do not know what we will be in the end, but we do know this much. We will see God as he is. And that's the beatific vision. Being in the presence of God as he is partaking in that great joy for eternity. That should be our daily goal. Each day as we wake up, we should say, Father, what is your will for me this day? And as we find the answer or struggle to find the answer, we can always look to Jesus, who, when in doubt, went up the mountain or by the seashore or off in a boat to pray, to pray to his Father, to reconnect, to ground himself once again in an intimate relationship with the Father. That's all the Father wants from us, an intimate relationship which is giving and not taking. So when we come to those obstacles, we know that we have to take our cross up daily. We have to follow Christ in his example. But at the same time, we must be able to knock, to seek, and to find. And he will lead us to the mountaintop where the clear winds blow and eagles fly, and thereby we will know that we have opened ourselves to God, and we say, I trust in you. I know you will not let me down, for I am your creation.